Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into another installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand and always joined by our two hosts, Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. Of course, America observing the Derek Chauvin trials. And with that, we bring in Andrew Gordon, Deputy Director for Community Legal Services at the Legal Rights Center. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Andrew, uh, today the state rest of the defense presented the beginnings of their case in chief. I know you've been busy with a million things. We're going to talk about the trial, um, basically the way things ended up yesterday. We heard from the cardiologist and also among the other witnesses we heard from yesterday was George Floyd's brother. What struck you from those two witnesses? Uh, I I guess starting with the last witness, uh, George Floyd's brother, um, you know, we have this interesting rubric called Sparkle Life Testimony in Minnesota. Um, it's funny. I've learned through this process that that's not common throughout the United States. Um, but you saw him present, I think, a very vivid picture. Uh, you saw Mr. Floyd's brother present a very vivid picture of the type of person he was. And we'd heard some of this before. Uh, but I think to have the opportunity to put a witness up there who could speak very directly to their experience with Mr. Floyd was a very strong way to kind of recap what has been, what, two plus weeks of testimony. Um, and it was a strong effort from the prosecution, I think. Um, with respect to the cardiologist, um, he gave very compelling testimony. Um, he was very likable, very affable, uh, someone that seemed to relate very well to the jury. And granted, we're watching on the screen, we're not in the courtroom, uh, but it seemed to me that he got over his point fairly well, um, despite the fact that I think he inserted himself into the case, which is always a weird dynamic to have. So, Andrew, do you think that the defense is going to put Chauvin on? My guess would be no. Um, in fact, I would be I would legitimately be shocked if Derek Chauvin were to take the stand himself. Uh, I think the case that they've set out and the narrative that they're trying to spin doesn't require his testimony. And I have to imagine there's a certain level of fear at the thought of a cross-examination walking him through every agonizing second of the video and of the time that his knee was on Mr. Floyd's back and neck. Do you think that the jury's going to find it odd if he doesn't take a stand? I mean, I, I completely agree with your assessment, but do you think that they'll find it odd? Yeah, I think, I think most lay people would find it odd, right? Uh, because I think the expectation, the idea that we have about jury trials is that it's an opportunity for you to tell your side of the story. And I think people generally find it odd when defendants don't testify, even if it's the right strategic move. Um, I have to imagine that with the world watching, I think a lot of people would have expected Derek Chauvin to take the opportunity to explain himself, but I just can't see it happening from a legal perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, We'll see. You know, it's always the dilemma in these kind of cases, whether you put your client on the stand as a defense lawyer, and frequently they don't because the idea is you don't have any burden. You know, you could just sit there and say the state hasn't proven their burden. Why would I take the chance? But I think you're right in this case, given the stakes involved and given the video, um, it's, re- it's really tough not to put Chauvin on. But let's turn your attention to the judge because we saw a motion from the defense after what is going on in Brooklyn Center um, to sequester the jury. 
Now, the judge denied that. And you know this judge, Peter Cahill. Uh, you, I do. You before, you, you've appeared before him uh, in the past. What do you think of that ruling on the sequester motion and also generally how Judge Cahill has conducted himself and how he has conducted this trial so far? Um, so to start with the first bit, I guess, first, um, I'm not surprised that Judge Cahill came out that way with sequestration. He, he, he likes to be very efficient. He likes to keep things moving. Um, for something like sequestration, he would have wanted time to prepare that. And I think you're seeing a little bit of a preview with that because I think irrespective of where the defense ends up, whether they finish today, tomorrow, or maybe even Thursday, it sounds like we're not going to be doing closing arguments until Monday. And the reason for that is because Judge Cahill wants to give the jurors time to prepare for what will then be sequestration once closing arguments are done. Uh, and so I, I, I don't think he wants to rush into things. And I think he's very, cons- he, he takes, he puts a lot of effort and time into the decisions that he makes. And that's always been true of Judge Cahill. Um, despite that, you've seen him get frustrated. You've seen him get rankled during the course of this trial. Um, most notably, obviously, during jury selection um, with the, the announcement of the, um, the settlement from the city. Uh, and you saw a level of frustration that he often reserves for in-chambers conferences, as opposed to, for example, being on the record or in this case, being on camera. So, Andrew, the evidence so far has been quite compelling in many different ways. How do you think that the jury is perceiving the evidence so far? Um, I can tell you what I've heard and what I've seen. Um, It sounded like there were jurors who were drifting off during the presentation of a lot of the medical testimony, especially last week. Uh, I think at that point they had heard it before in the afternoon. They just weren't paying attention. Um, You can contrast that with, from everything I've heard from folks who have been in the courtroom, that the jurors were, they they effectively stood in rapt attention during the early presentation of the prosecution witnesses, the lay witnesses, um, the individuals who were bystanders, the individuals who were seeing what happened to George Floyd. Um, There was apparently a lot of emotional reaction to the initial showing of the videos and a lot of emotional reaction to that early testimony. And that's one of those things where, granted, we're three plus weeks now away from that, but I have to imagine that that, that would have left a lasting impression in the minds of the jurors, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays into deliberations. Yeah, Andrew, I agree that I think the state made a bit of a mistake in presenting the number of witnesses that they did, the repetitiveness of the witnesses, mm-hmm. and the degree to which they went into such detail about their background. I mean, you know as well as anyone that jurors don't have the attention span that you think they might. And you just got to get in and get out. The state has such overwhelming evidence that I think bringing in too much was a mistake. But, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Last question on Legal Face Up. We really appreciate your time. You're on the ground there in Minneapolis. You have been involved in the um, protest following the uh, very tragic shooting, accidental shooting, it sounds like, of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center. Uh, bring us up to speed on uh, what's going on on that front right now. Um, so I, the capacity I work in primarily is to support folks who are protesting, folks who are demonstrating. And so when we learned of the killing on Sunday evening, all those gears started spinning just again. You know, we, we know we had to put in, for example, place jail support. We know we had to put in, we had to get medics to the scene. We know we had to organize kind of what those demonstrations and protests would look like. And so I've been working very closely with folks on the ground and organizers on supporting those efforts uh, and in supporting those efforts in a way that was safe that kept the attention on, on Mr. Wright, on his family, on the tragedy of the loss of his life. 
Um, you can imagine, though, that people are angry. You can imagine that people are incredibly frustrated um, because we all kind of knew deep down, right, that the trial of Derek Chauvin wasn't actually going to change what policing looked like, especially out here. Um, but to be reminded of it so quickly, because this is the second time now that a person of color has been shot and killed since George Floyd has died. And so to be reminded of the, how do I want to say this? To be, to be reminded of how um, poorly, I guess, law enforcement treats people of color in the Twin Cities so frequently it, it, it continues to be a shock to the system. It continues to, to bring about a certain amount of anger and frustration uh, because we don't see people in this community. We don't see the, the our political leaders. We don't see people in law enforcement actually doing the things that would see change. Anyone interested in community support, Andrew encourages, encourages you to visit LegalRightsCenter.org. Andrew, thanks so much for the insight today. Great stuff. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio, and our next segment includes two esteemed guests. We've got David Franklin, a law professor at DePaul University. He also clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, along with Travis Leichner, managing partner of Keller & Leichner, also former clerk at the Justice County at Supreme Court, and for Justice Kavanaugh when he was on the court. Welcome to the show. Uh, you're both repeat guests. We appreciate you coming out. We're going to talk about the uh, executive order signed on Friday by President Biden and paneling a commission to examine possible reforms to the Supreme Court and federal judiciary. What do you make of the some what, 36 members who have been named to this commission? Uh, David, what are your thoughts on, on this group? Well, it's a very impressive group of people. Um, and it's, you know, pretty balanced considering it's coming from a democratic president. There are six or seven strong conservatives out of the 36. I, you know, at the same time, you know, I don't think it's likely to result in any actual court reform. I don't think Joe Biden wants to uh, reform the court. Um, and, you know, he didn't really put any strong pro-reform firebrands on this commission. And I think that's probably a missed opportunity, not necessarily because they would have made a difference, but, you know, um, sometimes the threat is stronger than the execution. Like when, when FDR threatened to, to pack the court, you could make an argument that that actually helped to nudge the court a little bit to the left and saved some parts of the New Deal. And so possibly if 
if Biden had shown a stronger hand and put some uh, more radical pro-reform people on this commission, maybe possibly that could have influenced some of the justices to uh, sort of pull in their horns a little bit. But but who knows? Travis, what are your thoughts on that? 36 seems to me like a lot of people to you know, put on a commission, especially given the deadlines that the law mandates. What are your thoughts? It's a it's a big group to be sure. Uh, I agree with David. It's an impressive group, and but I agree. You know, this appears to um, you know, maybe be one of those blue ribbon commissions to nowhere. Uh, you know, the, the it's a it's a large group. There are conservatives on it. Expect a a long and thoughtful report at the end of the process. But but not necessarily a, a any sort of dramatic move toward um, you know quote unquote reform. I mean reform uh, of any political institution, government institution is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and as David said, there there aren't uh, some of the strongest advocates for change in the court structure aren't here. And of course, in an evenly divided Senate, uh, where some of the most dramatic proposals would require. Um, not just legislative action, congressional action, but a constitutional amendment. I think the odds, uh, A, that this commission comes out in favor of a single overarching proposal, and B, that that proposal would go somewhere and actually be uh, enacted, passed by Congress, or or in the form of a constitutional amendment, are, um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say vanishingly small. But, but let me just say, I think it's, you know, it, we shouldn't lose sight of why there is so much momentum for Supreme Court reform among progressives. I mean, the context here is like we're in a democracy crisis in this country between gerrymandering and the malapportionment of the Senate, plus the filibuster, plus the Electoral College. And then you've got the Supreme Court, which is really a part of that. You know, over the past half century, there have only been 18 new Supreme Court justices. 14 have been appointed by Republican presidents. Republican candidates have lost seven of the last eight elections from a popular vote standpoint. Um, and yet we still have a six to three conservative majority in, in large part due to the cynical maneuverings of, of Mitch McConnell. And then that conservative majority, you know, has opened the doors to corporate spending in elections, has uh, declared that partisan gerrymandering is is not justiciable and has basically disemboweled the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, that's what allows states like Georgia and maybe others soon to enact these voter suppression laws. That's why many progressives are so angry and are pushing for court reform. So the commission was announced a few days after Justice Breyer had warned against packing the Supreme Court as a way to undo the current conservative majority in a Harvard Law School webinar. This is actually a topic that's gotten a lot of airplay in which we've actually spoken to others about on legal face-off previously. Breyer said that expanding the number of justices could undermine the trust that the court has gradually built. David, would you like to kick this one off with your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that um, you know increasing the size of the court is a is a non-starter. Um, you know, it didn't work for FDR even after he had won a historic landslide. His party controlled three quarters of the seats in the House, and he still couldn't get it through. There's there's no way that that Biden will get that through with a razor thin majority. Uh, look, if I were designing the Supreme Court from scratch, uh, I would keep the court at nine justices. Um, you don't want to appear to be like changing the referees in the middle of the game, right? Or packing the packing the court. Um, but I would give them non-renewable 
single 18-year term so that every president gets an appointment every two years. We're not starting from scratch. There's been an interesting proposal to still give each president two appointments per four-year presidential term, um, but not cap the court at nine. So the court's size might fluctuate as justices retire or leave the court, um, but each president could count on on two appointments just to take some of the heat off the confirmation process um, uh, going forward. Um, But look, I I don't expect that this commission's recommendations are going to yield any real court reform in the end. Travis, let me ask you. Let me ask you a little bit of different take on that on that concept. So, uh, Breyer, as Tina mentioned, is what eighty-two. Uh, he's one of only three justices appointed by a Democrat. There's a lot of pressure on him to resign, you know, fairly quickly during the Biden presidency, and especially before the Republicans, you know, may take control, retake control over the Senate. Uh, you're a former Supreme Court clerk. Um, what do you think the justices do, or how do you think they react when they hear that, that that kind of discussion? Obviously, they're not immune to it. Obviously, they're aware of it. Do you think Breyer specifically feels any pressure to resign while Biden can appoint his successor? I think uh, they are they are certainly aware of the politics. Uh, no one gets nominated to or confirmed to the Supreme Court without uh, himself or herself being uh, deft and, and, and able to navigate. Um, national politics in that way. But, but you know, famously, efforts to pressure justices to retire um, backfire or don't succeed more often than they do. And Justice Ginsburg uh, you know, is, is the, most, the most recent prominent example of that. There was a, a progressive group last week that had a, tr- a truck, a bil- one of these billboard trucks, driving loops around uh, the Supreme Court building and the Capitol complex with a massive sign on both sides that said, uh, you know, Breyer, retire. And I think that um, I think that doesn't work. Uh, and, and I don't know if I would say that it's likely to backfire, but the the it's a perceived, you know, the justices perceive that too as a challenge in some ways to their independence. And if you're bowing to political pressure to retire, um, you know, some, some of them would say you're giving into that in a way that's inappropriate. So um, he is the oldest. There is a lot of pressure on him. Whether he ultimately makes that decision this year, um, you know, we'll know very soon. But I, I think there are several good examples of people who have gone too far and been too express uh, in, in the pressure campaigns, and those haven't worked. I agree with David. If I were, if I were drawing up a Supreme Court uh, here at home from first principles, uh, there, there would be term limits. There would be some kind of... Um, different structure in place to keep this from happening. You know, the, we're, uh, we've improved modern medicine. Judges, justices are trending older in terms of how long they have stay on the court and their age when they leave it. Um, but because that too would require a constitutional amendment, I think for, for the foreseeable future, we are where we are with, uh, you know, service during good behavior uh, uh, according to the constitution. David, really quickly touch on that because you clerked for Justice Ginsburg and very famously before she passed away. Justice Ginsburg, you know, was very vocal in wanting a Democrat to uh, appoint her successor and was very regretful by all accounts of the fact that Trump was appointing someone that he appointed to succeed her. How did Justice Ginsburg really feel about that and the pressures to, you know, uh, apply politics while also trying to do your, you know, serve your role as a justice? I never talked to her about that. Um, you know, she was a pretty private person about such things. But it's pretty clear that 
the idea of lifetime appointments for for judges and for justices um, is a silly idea. Um, I mean, you'd never design a, a system that way if you were coming up with it now, you know. And it, it leads to this sort of macabre kind of death watch that I just found really unseemly in the case of, well, Justice Ginsburg or anybody else. I mean, it's all right to sit around and wonder, you know, when Prince Philip is going to die because Prince Philip doesn't matter, right? But Supreme Court justices have enormous power. And this, this pressure towards strategically timed retirements, it's understandable given the system that we have, right? But it, it, it can only increase the public's cynicism about the justices. And that's what Breyer was, was saying, right? That if, that if people are pushing for, I mean, he didn't say this explicitly, but people are pushing for him to retire, that just enhances the public's sense that justices are partisan players. Um, and although increasingly I think they kind of are, it would be nice if people didn't think that all the time. Um, so, you know, I don't know if there's a, a, a simple way out at this point. I certainly don't think there's any legislative will uh, to change this, even in the ways that could be done by ordinary legislation. Um, and so for the foreseeable future, we're just going to be, you know, pushing for justices to retire or hoping they stay or wishing they don't die. It's just kind of morbid. So David and Travis, last question here on Legal Face Off. So far this term of the Supreme Court, we've seen a number of really significant decisions, including the Trump Twitter case, Google versus Oracle are just a few examples. Taking this last minute here, can you each share one or two cases that you think have been the most significant, either that have been decided or that are coming up? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and I'll, I'll hope not to take David's too, but we have not compared notes in advance. Uh, but, you know, a couple of, of many that, that I would uh, am interested to see the decisions in, you know, the, the court uh, has heard now, I think, the third challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and uh, the, the, the machinations of, of that litigation have, have taken the path that they have over the last uh, nearly decade. And uh, so this is another set of litigation among states about you know, the, the so-called, you know, this individual mandate, the, the requirement that people um, purchase insurance as well as the, the penalty or tax for non-compliance. Uh, and, and then some, some issues wrapped in there with um, an obscure but pretty important legal doctrine called severability. Uh, you know, if, if one thing is bad in the statute, what's the default rule? Does that mean the entire statute goes away or, or just the bad part? Uh, but obviously, uh, a case people are watching uh, because of the importance of the ACA. And then uh, another case called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which is uh, a case concerning a dispute between a Catholic foster care agency and the city, uh, the city of Philadelphia cutting ties with the organization after it learned that uh, the group was not placing foster children in the homes of same-sex couples. We're going to see, uh, with this Supreme Court in particular, an increasing interest in religious liberty cases, uh, and, and this this Fulton case being the latest example of that, and and a good sense uh, for Justice Barrett in her first term on the court of her voice on those issues uh, and and what her presence on the court will mean for those cases. So those are two of the several that I'm interested in seeing. Uh, I don't know if I if we have time left, but I would just um, uh, echo both of those and add that on the issues in that Fulton case, we've already seen the court tip its hand 
in the series of COVID-19 cases dealing with places of worship, uh, particularly the one that was out of California decided just last week. Um, and, and this is really important because, uh, you know, when he was still on the court about 30 years ago, Justice Scalia wrote a really important opinion that basically said that religious believers don't have a constitutional right to disobey generally applicable laws. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so that, you know, your, your, your free exercise rights are only violated, right, if the state singles you out as a religious believer for special penalties. Uh, well, in this series of cases uh, um, this year, um, the court, in cases, by the way, with, without full briefing or argument, without a signed opinion for the court, um, has basically reversed Scalia's position on that and has held that as long as the religious believer can show that there's some secular entity that is treated better, then they've got a valid and strong uh, claim of discrimination. Uh, so we see the court moving far to the right, uh, even of Justice Scalia, on issues of religious rights. We've always got extra time for you, David. Thank you. And Travis as well. Thank you both so much. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. We move on to Florida Congressman Matt Gates publicizing his federal investigation. And with that, we bring in Patrick Cotter, an officer at Greensfelder. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Well, Patrick, a couple of weeks ago, Republican Congressman Matt Gates preemptively announced to the press that he is under FBI investigation for allegedly having a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl and for paying women for sex, which is in violation of federal sex trafficking and prostitution laws. Can you tell us a bit more about how the news broke and what the latest is? Well, the news broke apparently because Mr. Gates was aware it was about to break. So he preemptively, as I understand it, uh, went on sort of a media blitz in which he tried to spin it that, in fact, uh, he was he was about to be accused of being the target of such an investigation, but that, in fact, he was the victim of an elaborate extortion involving his father and an ex-FBI agent captured in Iran and some ex-DOJ people and uh, you know, Jason Bourne or somebody else, but he had a whole theory that he wanted to get out there first. So that's how it broke. And the media, of course, enjoyed it and, and put him on whenever he wanted to be on. And he was everywhere he could be. Yeah. I mean, Tucker Carlson called it uh, one of the more bizarre interviews he's ever had. And you know, when Tucker Carlson says that, <laughs> yeah, it's gotta be strange. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it seems like the, this investigation is following many we have seen where, uh, his alleged co, you know, co-defendant in this case is going to flip on him, right? So that's talk yes. to us in your experience as a U.S. attorney why that is the game plan generally for going after prominent figures. Don't go after, you know. Obviously, Gates has shown that he's not going to flip necessarily. He's going to the media. Talk to us about the strategy that U.S. attorneys employ in going after the next guy. 
Right. Uh, U.S. attorneys are trained to uh, build cases uh, in two ways. One, by going out into the world and finding evidence of wrongdoing, uh, witnesses, documents, emails, that sort of thing. The other way is to, once you identify somebody who's involved in a criminal activity and you know there were other people involved, you go to that person, you exert as much pressure as you can, and you try and flip them. Because obviously that's a great shortcut. They know who they did it with and they know how they did it and they know where they left the, the evidence. So that's how you're trained. And that's this is right out of the basic playbook. Uh, they're going after Mr. Greenberg, uh, who is already under indictment. They're putting on the pressure and saying, did you do this with anybody else? And Mr. Gates is hoping very much he, he won't agree to tell who we did it with, apparently. Uh, and uh, the government is, seems pretty confident that Mr. Greenberg is, in fact, going to cooperate. And let me just jump in. I know Tia has another question, but how much evidence does the U.S. government have at this point in the investigation? I mean, we hear from we have a lot of federal prosecutors on this on this podcast, and it seems like you have or when you were working for the U.S. attorney, way more evidence at this point in the investigation than we understand as a public. Right. I mean, the evidence has to be pretty overwhelming to get to this point. And usually in that room when you're talking about Greenberg, I'm sure it's overwhelming. Right. For, for someone like him. That's why it's so successful to try to flip these guys. Well, I, I mean, first of all, yes, uh, as as a. As an ex-prosecutor, I always wanted people I was talking to to try and flip to think the evidence was overwhelming. <laughs> uh, so so then I would have said, yes, of course, it's overwhelming. Um, the truth is we don't know how much evidence they have. However, given the nature of the charges that have already been filed against Mr. Greenberg, which involved interstate travel, payment of money, cash withdrawals, the payment of gifts, uh, tuition, uh, God knows what that means. Uh, but but uh, that that is easily documented. There are there are records for all of that, and the government and the FBI know how to get them. So I don't know that I'd agree at this point that the evidence is overwhelming because we don't know yet. But certainly there's significant evidence. There was enough evidence to indict Mr. Gates. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Take that back. Indict Mr. Greenberg. Almost pretty soon. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting <laughs> Mr. Gates is in the what we call. Uh, the uh, pre-indictment phase of his uh, case. So uh, it's Mr. Greenberg, but there was enough evidence for a federal grand jury to indict him. So that certainly is indicative that they have more than suspicion. They actually have some hard evidence. So Patrick, we're talking about how, um, you know, Gates is claiming that he's essentially, this is all, you know, payback for his involvement in the investigation of the extortion and um, that his father's involved, that his father, he actually went public and mentioned that his father has worn a wire to assist the FBI. Um, he's calling for these recordings to be released publicly. And he has said some other pretty outrageous things that are supposed to be kept confidential at the very least. Um, you've referred to this as a betrayal of investigators. Do you, do you care to comment more on some of, some of this pretty outrageous activity by Gates? Well, certainly, uh, when when a person, a citizen, agrees to wear a wire, go undercover for the government, there's always a very clear understanding that that involvement must remain confidential and secret so that it doesn't taint or ruin an investigation. The fact that Mr. Gates has gone public with his father's alleged uh, cooperation with the government as an undercover uh, is a betrayal of that agreement. And uh, 
I would also add that if Mr. Gates was was correct, that in fact he the, the only investigation is an investigation of a uh, blackmail attempt against his father and he, uh, by this time, I would have expected the federal government to step forward and saying, yes, that's correct. That's the only investigation we're doing. Uh, the, the silence from the DOJ is deafening. Uh, Mr. Gates's accusations about being the victim here have been out for weeks, and the DOJ has done nothing to confirm them. And they certainly would have if they saw the facts the same way Mr. Gates does. Last question, Patrick. You were one of the prosecutors among your many uh, uh, large prosecutions. You were one of the prosecutors in the U.S. versus John Gotti case. We, we like to ask uh, U.S. attorneys on this show to bring us inside the room when you are pursuing a high profile defendant like a John Gotti, like a Matt Gates. So why is it so important to show the public that the government is going after defendants like this? How much of that is ego by the prosecutors, which is okay to deny, but it's also okay to admit that's part of it. And then how much of it is you're attempting to show the public and other public officials who might go down this road that there are consequences for that course of action. Right. I can't speak, obviously, for anyone else who's prosecuted high-profile defendants. I can only tell you that in going after Mr. Gotti, uh, his prominence was absolutely a motivator. Uh, much more motivating, however, were the multiple murders, uh, extortions, labor racketeering, etc., that we convicted him of. But certainly his prominence matters. And the message is simply this. No one is above the law. And the danger with a Mr. Gotti was that there was a belief in New York back in those days, for most of your listeners weren't born, I guess, when I was doing my big case, but any of them that remember that, he was bigger than life. He was on the front page of the paper. He was, uh, he was on the cover of magazines. He was treated like a celebrity instead of a murderer. And that's very dangerous for a society. And so certainly we went after him knowing of his prominence and wanting to send the message as loud and clear as possible. No one's above the law. I think that would apply to a sitting congressman. And I think it's a valid motivator. It can't be the only reason you go after somebody. That would be wrong. But it's certainly a valid, appropriate reason to go after somebody who's broken the law, no matter who they are. Patrick, thank you so much. We're so grateful. We'll send you our gratefulness via Venmo. If you can't find it, the caption is tuition. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I believe I can do just about anything with that. So because <laughs> tuition apparently means whatever Matt Gates says it means. So it's great. Right. right. Thank, Thank you. you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach Mike Ditka. 
and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. On to our final and most fun segment of the Legal Faceoff podcast is the Legal Grab Bag segment. Two very special guests. We've got announcer at both ESPN and WGN Radio, along with the new father of Matilda Ruth, Jordan Burnfield. Jordan, how are you doing today? I am doing great, and it's uh, really nice to be here and to be awake for an hour. So that's also good. Awesome. Well, along with Jordan, we've got Christina Steed, Executive Vice President of Marcom with Flowers Communication. Christina, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, Rich, we're going to dive right into it. Uh, Clearly one of the biggest stories in America right now, 20-year-old Dwayne Wright shot and killed by police in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota during a traffic stop. Yeah, we're watching the press conference right now. I've got it on the TV behind my screen. The police chief just resigned, um, as well as the police officer who fatally shot Mr. Wright resigned. Uh, We saw a lot of protests uh, in the wake of this shooting. And uh, I guess I just want to talk from a legal perspective, you know, because there's so many different angles. And we just had a gentleman on who is one of the organizers of the uh, protests in Brooklyn Center. But from a legal perspective, Tina, a couple of interesting things are, I think these... Uh, cases have changed and, you know, for the better in that, in this case, we saw the video released, you know, right away. Um, Within 24 hours, we saw saw the video. That is a change. Generally, these videos have taken a long time to be released. We've seen FOIA requests right here in Chicago, uh, famously, um, probably cost Mayor Emanuel his job by not releasing the video for well over a year. Um, So I think one positive change from a legal perspective is the transparency that we're seeing, the demand to see what is happening on these videos. That happened fairly quickly. Um, Also, uh, from a legal perspective, um, this is a little different than the Derek Chauvin case that we'll talk about in a moment, but it still falls under the umbrella, as we talked with our guests earlier about the disproportional treatment of people of color in particular, it seems like in the Twin Cities, but obviously on a national level, we're seeing that uh, that problem, that epidemic, many would say, across the country. So uh, what are your thoughts on that before we get to our guests? I mean, I agree with you, Rich. And I think that the fact that the Chauvin trial is happening as this is all happening is, um, I, I don't want to call it a coincidence. I think it's just in- increasing our awareness and our mindfulness on these issues. And I agree with you that everything has gotten accelerated. Like if if this had not happened against the backdrop of where we are today, I don't think the police chief and the officer that had shot Dante Wright would have resigned as quickly as, as they did. And I'm hoping that we get to a place quickly where we're just not having these issues as, as frequently. Um, But I agree with you that from a legal perspective, I I think the world has changed in the past year. Christina, we saw saw this video. We saw uh, a few days ago the case of the uh, military officer who was pepper sprayed for not getting out of his car. That officer has since been fired. 
Um, what are your thoughts on these instances, especially as Tina mentioned, in light of the trial that we're going to be discussing in a moment? No, I think it, it demonstrates a number of things. I think in the in the atmosphere that we're in, the expediency of what can be deemed as what what should be happening is is heightened, as well as the example of the military uh, person who was pepper spray in the car is an example of someone who was doing everything right. So there's the counter argument that people like to bring up. Well, if they only complied, if they did this, if they did that, well, that is a perfect example of what black parents tell their black children children. Put your hands up, let them see your hands, you know, comply with the orders. He did all that. And yet and still there was the disrespect and the, you know, this latent fear around black people driving their cars, living their lives. And so I think to uh, Tina's point, I think as a marketer, the business community is not going to stand for um, prolonged um, waiting to release a video, waiting to take action. And the business community is tired of this as well. And we're working with companies who are making stands, you know, speaking externally about this. And so the involvement of that plus what's going on in the streets at the grassroots level is helping to to move the change. And, and I think the right direction. Yeah, Jordan, you're in professional sports. Obviously, you're mindful of the rest of the world going on. But, you know, notably yesterday, all three uh, Minnesota sports teams that are currently in season canceled their games uh, in recognition of the need to just take a moment um, and reflect, perhaps, on what's going on in our society, which I think is another positive change, you know, reflecting that athletes are members of societies as, as you know, at large. They've got consciousness. And in my opinion, there's some of the foremost leaders in the community, right? I mean, I think the perception was in the past, athletes do your job, stay in your lane, you're not role models, famously from the old you know, ad. Um, but now I'm so impressed with some of the uh, articulate young men and women that we're seeing advancing these causes, in particular, for example, with um, the advancement in, in women's sports, right? We, we didn't have time to cover this today, but there was a settlement yesterday in the U.S. You know, female soccer team uh, movement to increase their pay. So there's a lot going on here in terms of athletics, too. And I think it's such a positive move that athletes are making their voices heard on these issues. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think to add to that, one of the things that we're seeing now, I think the acceleration of both the pandemic and then everything that happened initially with George Floyd sort of gave license to sports teams to come out and to have a stand on things, whether it is social justice or otherwise. And I think that the events of 2020 sort of opened things up for sports teams to do that without the fear of what some people might believe if they disagree with those stances. So I, I applaud the Minnesota teams for doing it. And frankly, I think there is a safety concern there too. I, I think not only is it smart to kind of take a breath after such a, a difficult event where there's going to be a lot of emotion felt within the community. And certainly the emotions are heightened in, in Minneapolis and in the Twin Cities areas, given now this and, and certainly from George Floyd a year ago. But I think now, you know, we're seeing that sports teams are more willing to do this and they do have a big impact. I think you're right, Rich. When you look at some of the most influential people of color in America, many of them are athletes and they should be allowed to use their influence for good and for change. And so I think that, you know, of all the difficulty and sadness of 2020, one thing that I think that has changed for the better moving forward is that more of these people feel that they have license to speak out when they feel that they should. And I think that's a good thing. 
Yeah, 100%. I, I, I want to move on, but just really quickly, Joe and Jordan, you know, you have spent much of your professional lives inside locker rooms, inside dugouts, behind the scenes. Are these conversations that athletes have had forever and we just didn't hear from them because they didn't feel they had the platform? Or are they now, you know, are we now hearing their voices more than ever because of what's going on in society? I think the main factor is is the Colin Kaepernick situation because there was nobody as vocal or as demonstrative as, as him. And that kind of opened up the ways for the professional athletes to realize, okay, we do have a platform here and people will listen to us. I mean, I mean, you go back to it when he first started kneeling, there was all this confrontation and all these arguments and now everybody kneels. Um, and that, now that's just, that's just part of the game too. So I, I think that's kind of what started it in terms of players talking. I mean, yeah, maybe something here or there, but now I think, I think players are getting a lot more comfortable realizing the platform that they have can be beneficial towards society and they're finally utilizing it. Yeah. I think to add to that too, you know, when, when Colin Kaepernick sort of started uh, speaking out against police brutality and, and some of the uh, issues that he brought to the forefront, it was very uncomfortable uh, for a lot of people in ownership positions in sports. And I think, that one of the most significant moments from a sports perspective that happened last year was Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, falling on his sword and admitting he was wrong. And I honestly did not see that coming. And this is not me giving him credit. I don't think he deserves an ounce of credit, frankly. But I think the fact that he finally decided that they were going to embrace these issues that Colin Kaepernick raised as opposed to oppose them, you know, that, that is something that is changing the culture in sports because the NFL is the most powerful league. And even though the commissioner has been wrong and consistently wrong for a while, for him to now flip here, I think is allowing for other leagues to feel more comfortable in taking these stands. And I know that there are some owners in the NFL that are adamantly against all of this. But I think that now that the commissioner has said, listen, we can't, we can't fight this. We have to help them in their efforts with social justice, as hollow as it may seem to some who feel like he didn't do enough early on, that will benefit athletes going forward to allow them to raise their voice. We did touch on it a little bit, but the eerie thing is that this is all happening while the Derek Chauvin trials are going on in Minnesota. Now experts are speaking out saying that Chauvin didn't act as a reasonable officer in the incident during George Floyd's death. Health experts are saying Floyd died because of Chauvin's kneeling on his neck, not because of drugs or underlying underlying health issues or anything else like that, Rich. Yeah, I mean, the state rested today. That's the big news. Defense started their case in chief very unimpressively, uh, in my opinion. Um, I think the uh, defense did a very poor job in their initial uh, presentation of their witnesses. The state did a great job, I thought, cross-examining them. So I think they scored some points. But we'll just go around the horn and we'll let our guests do a lot of the talking, Tina. But, you know, let's just go around and, and get some quick impressions on the first couple weeks of the trial um, as the prosecution has ended their case in chief. Tina, what are your one or two big takeaways so far? Um, I just think that, you know, everybody's watching at this point. Um, You know, as we talked about when we interviewed our guest earlier, it's going to be interesting to see if if Chauvin gets a chance to testify. I don't think that he's going to. 
Um, and I really think that, in my opinion, the defense has an uphill battle at this point, and it's going to be interesting to see um, what happens, especially, again, given that real life is happening around this trial and the attempts to sequester the jury. I mean, that's all part of it as well. Um, it, it's just going to be very interesting, and I just hope for the safety of everybody um, in Minnesota and elsewhere as, as this continues. Christina, so to that point, do you think there's a danger, as the defense has asserted, that the jury uh, will hear about the unrest? Obviously, they're not sequestered. They're going home. They're reading the news. They're seeing what's going on. Do you think that there's a danger that Chauvin will not get a fair hearing? Again, you know, you might think he's whatever you think of his guilt or innocence. Most of us think that he's guilty. But whatever you think, he deserves a fair trial. And there's a danger that the jurors will be influenced by what they're saying in Brooklyn Center and think, I have to write this wrong somehow. I have to contribute to fixing these society ills. So I'm going to find in favor of the state. Do you think there's any danger there? Um, I, I, the word danger is, is interesting. I think there is the possibility that the, that the outside news and the way that we even consume news today could have an influence on someone. Can someone as a juror take their responsibility to sit in that seat and be objective, weigh all the information, the evidence, what has been presented and make a decision? I do believe in that because they get very strict instruction. They have access to understanding or getting more more information around, around what's being presented in the trial. So there's that. But we do live in, in an information age. We live in where we are surrounded 24-7 by news and information. So it is upon us to make that decision. So I don't think in any case you can really honestly have, um, you know, unless there's the quester to keep all that information out. And so, you know, hopefully they'll be able to follow jury instruction and be able to make the decision related to that particular case. Yeah, that's a really good observation. Uh, Jordan, I want to get your perspective because, you know, I've been lucky enough to be on, on, on a few different programs, talk about the Chauvin trial. I'm on John Williams on, on WGN almost every day. And we're analyzing, you know, these really minute points of law, you know, um, every day. And that's what the jury hears. But from your perspective, does any of that matter? You know, there's always the feeling that as a layperson on the jury, you're going to think, yeah, okay, maybe the time of death was this, or maybe this, maybe you know, his his enlarged heart or maybe his uh, drug use had a bit of a causation factor. At the end of the day, your eyes don't lie, right? So do you think in the jury box they're thinking, why are we sitting here for hours and hours listening to all this detailed testimony? I saw the video. Clearly, there's some connection between putting your weight on someone's neck and then dying. Let's get out of here. You know, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very valid. I think when you look at this case, and you know, I've been following it as, as much as I can um, over the last couple of weeks, and it seems that every piece of evidence that has been presented in this case seems overwhelmingly to one side, right? I mean, we know where I think this is headed and where it should be heading, frankly, but I think that there really hasn't been a whole lot, um, you know, that that has been presented that is positive for Derek Chauvin, other than to suggest the possibilities of things that may have in some way contributed to the death of George Floyd. But I think everybody kind of knows where this should be heading. And I think, you know, to the point Christina made earlier, you know, the, the society in which we live can't fully sequester people, right? I mean, the, we live in an information age where people are going to get information. And you know, they struggled, it seemed, to put jurors 
on this case because most people feel one way about how this is going and and how it should go. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the evidence seems pretty overwhelming. And I think anyone, whether they are, you know, I am certainly not an expert of the law, but, you know, I cover the news. And so I know, you know, certain things about it that, that when you watch this, it does seem that uh, any rational or reasonable person would come to the same conclusion almost every time. And so, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the contribution um, of, well, not contribution, but the, the way we're seeing what's happening in Brooklyn Park right now is only escalating the pressure, I think, right? I mean, this can only go one way to alleviate some of the pressure in that community right now. And if somehow one juror were to decide something else, I think that we're going to have a huge problem on our hands in, in Minnesota. So, um, you know, I think it, it seems pretty clear. And I think any juror that was un- unaware of this case in some way, I think is going to conclude the same thing. Getting to another somewhat sports topic with an unfortunate connection. Chiefs uh, head coach Andy Reid's son, Britt, could face up to seven years in prison for driving while intoxicated and hitting a car that left a five-year-old critically injured, Tina. And this happened just days before the Super Bowl. Yeah, you're right, Joe. And this is actually a really sad story. Um, He could face up to seven years in prison. um, And there's more detail around this story than when we originally broke it right as it happened. Um, a couple months ago here on Legal Faceoff. Um, apparently, Reed had crashed his car um, the evening of February 4th, um, about a mile from um, the team's complex. It was about nine o'clock at night. He was legally intoxicated. And one of the questions that's emerging from this, and there are a number of them, is um, how he could have left work so intoxicated and what are the circumstances under which the team would let him leave um, their their workout complex um, in in that kind of a state. Apparently, he was driving about 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. He was was approaching um, an entrance ramp and was looking over his shoulder and apparently didn't see these two cars that were stranded on the side of the road. Um, They didn't have hazard lights on. He ended up hitting them both. Um, going really fast. And um, as you said, he really catastrophically injured this very young girl who severe had sustained severe uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, including brain contusions and subdural hematomas. He actually, Britt himself, actually was severely injured. He sustained a blunt force trauma to his groin. Um, apparently, this is um, the highest charge that he could be given due to some recent changes in the law. Um, This is not his first run-in with the law either, which is not going to help his case. A number of years ago, he pled guilty to gun and drug charges when he brandished a handgun. He was really young, he was 22. Um, He was also arrested after driving into a shopping cart in a parking lot and pled guilty to driving under the influence and drug possession in that case. So this is just a really sad story. And, um, you know, I imagine that he's destroyed his career at this point. And all we can hope is that this little girl um, is able to have some semblance of a life after sustaining this terrible injury. Yeah, I mean, I think the sad part is how little uh, he's going to face in jail, probably. Um, You know, I looked up the Missouri 
felony statutes, and Class D is um, the fourth least serious one. Class E is is the only one that's less serious. It is true that uh, aggravated DUI only qualifies as a Class D to your, you know, as you said, seven years. But man, if there's any if there's any crime that deserves way more time, it's it's this guy. You know, it, it's this crime. I mean, the guy was, you know. Flat out drunk, he he uh, he blew point one one three, you know, almost double the legal limit, and crashed into this you know poor young girl. So uh, Jordan, I wish he was going to get more time. He'll probably get some time off, um, and it'll just underline the idea in most people's heads that you know the uh, the rich and powerful, like a Kansas City chief coach, get preferential treatment. I agree, and I you know this story enraged me in a lot of ways seeing it too because this is completely avoidable for someone in his position and he is coaching first of all why he was drunk at the chief's facility there are a lot of questions that have to be answered with regard to that i i can't even i've covered a lot of teams and i've been in a lot of facilities and i've never seen anyone visibly drunk in a facility when they are working uh ever I mean, you don't even see the only time you even see alcohol would be like after a game, maybe, um, you know, if like guys are passing a beer around to have a drink before they go home. But to be that drunk, I don't even know how that would occur, first of all. But second of all, you know, the NFL has had a policy in the past where they would provide rides home for athletes if they were in a situation where they were drinking and needed a safe ride home. I know a lot of them didn't want to use it at the time because they were paranoid about the idea that the league or teams would know that they were out drinking and so they wanted to avoid it. But now everybody's got Uber and Lyft. When you just take your phone out, you can call for a ride and somebody will drive you home that presumably is sober and will get you home safely. So this entire thing is is just such a sad and horrible uh, case. And the idea that he could only get seven years out of this is is also terrible because like you said this is not his his first offense at the law and what he did here is completely reckless and irresponsible moving on to more of a positive note of traveling and going to different places um where are you guys gonna go if you have one of these tina you got one of these is that a covid passport a covid vaccine passport it's it's just my COVID vaccine uh, record card is what it's listed. But by no. the way, way to way to publicize it to on the internet. Now, <laughs> yeah. now you'll you're, you'll be the victim of identity theft within minutes. So good work. Yeah, I was just gonna say anybody who wants to um, to do that could do that pretty easily. I don't I don't know who wants to be me. So if they want to be me, I, I can't see it being much of an improvement in their life. But did Marlene laminate that for you? Uh, yeah, it looks that's right. Very this fresh. Is, yeah, very nice. Lamination is impressive. But Tina, the question is: Are, are they legal? Are, can an employer require uh, a legal pa- or vaccine passport? Right. Well, it's interesting, Rich, because a lot of people are conflating the discussion about vaccine passports with the underlying discussion that we've had a number of times on this show about whether requiring a vaccine is is legal. Now, on the passport issue, it's interesting. What we're really talking about is something that may be akin to like a phone app with a QR code, which would enable people, depending on where they're going, whether they're traveling internationally or going to a venue, to be able to essentially activate their app the way that they activate, you know, their their ticket on in their 
uh, in their wallet, for example, on their phone. Um, and it really seems like, I mean, based on what New York and Hawaii and other states that are rolling this out seem to think, that this is legal. Um, and folks have asked, well, maybe HIPAA is an issue. Maybe the Civil Rights Act is an issue. And at the end of the day, if people willingly participate by bringing their information into this app, um, you know, and, and because there, we're not really talking about protected classes here, no, neither one of those laws really seem to apply. And with regard to, you know, some of the objections that are being raised, I mean, a number of conservatives like Governor DeSantis from Florida have really sort of raised, you know, the, the alarm in terms of whether or not these are legal. And a lot of, I would say, constitutional experts are saying that none of these objections are really well founded. From a federal level, the government can regulate interstate commerce. And I think the government's really trying not to be heavy handed in any of this. Um, and also, this has been compared to the no shirts, no shoes, no service type of a situation. And so from that perspective, a lot of people think, you know, private businesses have every right to regulate this type of thing. So uh, Joe Brand has been a victim of that policy on countless occasions, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes one of the three, but frequently it's all it's all three of those transgressions. But Christina, um, what are your thoughts on this? Because Ron DeSantis, who's uh, you know very conservative governor of Florida, has said that this is akin to show us your papers and the government doesn't have the right to confront its citizens with the demand to show us proof of your vaccine. What are your thoughts on this? Is this legal or is this a unfair infringement into civil liberties by the government? You know, I think it's a good question for me. I, I think it, it's a great step for people to take with all this vaccine hesitancy, us wanting to get back to quote unquote normal life, to be able to travel, to be able to convene in places with more than 50 people. There has to be something to get us through to that point where people are going to have a level of comfort to assemble. I myself have not been on a plane since last March, and I was a plane jumper, a traveler, international and all that. So I am ready to get back um, into the swing of things from a travel standpoint. I have my vaccine laminated in my wallet and, and just ready to do that. And I wonder- Show us. Show yes. us. Who wants to see it? <laughs> I'm not going to put my information out there like Joe. However, um, the, the, the fact that the same questioning is not questions when we send people to school who need to be vaccinated. Last time I went to, you know, University of Illinois undergrad, I had to have some vaccinations to go away to school. Um, you know, just I have to have vaccinations- well, to protect myself when I travel internationally, um, the same concern needs to be held around what we're eating in our food. Like the fact that people eat certain things have no problem with it. But this vaccine is a challenge. It's interesting. And Ron DeSantis, the way he's managed the um, the pandemic in the state of Florida, I think, says everything in terms of um, the weight that he holds on this conversation. Yeah, I agree. And listen, if you have to, if it's legal to ask you to prove that you can own a pet or a firearm or a beauty salon, then it's okay to require people to prove that they've had the vaccine because that's a public health pandemic and infects us all. So I think it's a lot of nonsense, but uh, let's keep rolling because we got some other topics, Joe. Yeah, one of the places I'm sure a lot of people will flock to is Vegas, whether it's the hotels, whether it's the casinos. One person who won't be there though is probably OJ Simpson. I'm not sure why he's busy. all bent out of- He's looking for the killer, by the way. He's still looking. I don't I don't get why O.J. Simpson thinks his his reputation is going to be tarnished if people think he was out drunk in public. But uh, here we are, Tina. 
Well, yeah. So, you know, OJ, um, you know, every time we talk about OJ these days, it's unfortunately about something legal, right? You know, he's doing um, on parole. He's he's on parole right now after nine years in jail with regard to the armed robbery, kidnapping and assault with a weapon charges. Um, In this particular case, he settled this defamation case um, for an undisclosed amount. Would be interesting to hear what that amount was. But back in you know 2017, I think it was, um, there were hotel employees at the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Vegas that claimed that he had become drunk and disorderly and was allegedly belligerent and had damaged property and broken glass and was essentially kicked out of the hotel. Um, and apparently he is banned from the property going forward. What's really interesting is, I mean, not not um, surprisingly, OJ denied all these allegations. But what was really interesting was the legal theory that the hotel had um, put forth to defend against the defamation claim, which was that OJ cannot be defamed um, because of all of the other legal issues that he's had over the years and his run-ins with the law. I mean, ultimately, I don't necessarily think that that um, that that would have necessarily carried the day. But I find it to be an interesting legal theory that you're such a bad person that no one can defame you. Rich, what oh, do you think? You're, you're OJ. That's the only thing I would say to the jury is, ladies and gentlemen, he's OJ. How can he be defamed more than he's already been defamed? I mean, you know, uh, many would say that he got away with murder. Uh, he was convicted by a jury in a civil wrongful death suit by the Goldman family. He was also convicted in the, uh, you know, uh, 2007 armed robbery case. So I think it's a great legal strategy, one that's very easy to understand, which is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, he's OJ. And then I would just sit down and rest my case. Christina, is OJ, is it possible to defame OJ? So working in the branding business, Americans in this country, we love redemption. We love a comeback. I don't know if OJ could ever have that, but think if we had written off Robert Downey Jr. when he was having his issues. (laughs) So maybe OJ is keeping hope alive that we will turn his uh, brand will turn around and maybe he has brand partnerships that are in jeopardy and he doesn't want that attached to him right now. Who knows? Well, it's a really interesting point. And Jordan, I want to just get you really quickly because we're really short on time, but you know, it, it reminds me of this whole idea of, you know, cancel culture. And to Christina's point, America does love a comeback story. Is OJ, is it possible that in his lifetime, OJ will be uncanceled? And this whole idea of can you still appreciate the accomplishments of someone while hating what they did in their, you know, criminal past. We were thinking of people like Chris Brown. We're thinking of, you know, many examples. And there's this debate in society, right? Christine, you'll back me up on this, of whether you could still enjoy the artists without enjoying what they did. Is OJ possible? Is there an OJ comeback possible? To me, no. I mean, I think that people are still fascinated with the documentaries that came out, you know, in recent years about the case. Yeah. I think it's always going to be an interesting know, legal topic when you think about everything that happened in the 90s with regard to the case with the Goldmans and everything. But I don't, I don't know what, oh, he's also 73. Like what brand is he going to be able to really hawk at this point in his lifetime? His NFL career was so long ago 
there aren't a lot of people that even remember that he played football. True. I mean, he, was a, I think, he was unassailably one of the greatest running backs of all time. Yes. Get to a point in where you could appreciate how great he was as a player without mixing that up with his actions off the field. It's tough. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the same thing with other disgraced athletes and artists, right? Can you appreciate Bill Cosby's comedy, but separate it from, you know, Dave Chappelle has done a bunch of bits on this. Can I appreciate the comedy separating all the things that he did? Can I, can you appreciate Joe Paterno as the Penn state football coach, knowing that he was, you know, kind of presiding over this awful thing with Jerry Sandusky, I would say, it never goes away, right? There's always a stigma with regard to that. Then maybe you can appreciate to some degree the accomplishments of the person, but I don't think that you can ever completely separate the two. Yeah. I mean, Woody Allen is going through this right now, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 It's a great, it's a great debate. Um, I think some crimes are so egregious to your point, Jordan, that you can't come back from them. But Joe, our last story, uh, deals with sports also. It's kind of a sports heavy, heavy day, but, uh, the Cowboy, Joe West, has actually won a pretty hefty sum of money from Paula Duca. Uh, he won a, speaking of defamation, uh, he won $500,000 um, on Monday against former Major League catcher Paula Duca, stemming from an incident where Paula Duca went to the mound uh, when he was catching for Billy Wagner. And, you know, he was accusing Joe West of having kind of a liberal strike zone when it came to Billy Wagner pitching. And Billy Wagner said, oh, it's because, uh, you know, I would let him use my classic car after the game. Well, Paula Duca told this story on a podcast in 2019. The Cowboy, Joe West, who was one of the more prominent Major League Baseball uh, umpires, heard this and said, well, A, that's not true. It never happened. And B, that's defamatory, and it has affected my income. It's affected my ability to get into the Hall of Fame, and a court agreed and awarded him $500,000. Tina, defamation? Or- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I just have to wonder, why would someone tell a story like this that is so outrageous and not true? Um, I, I mean, I you know, was it to just garner fans and worship through this podcast? I, I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, you know, good for Joe West, because, I mean, I really think it probably had very little to do with the money and everything, as you said, Rich, about he wants to be in the Hall of Fame. And he knew that if with with this, you know, on his record, so to speak, that he probably wouldn't have had any chance. So well, for little, Joe, a little to do with the money. It's probably yeah, the 250,000 for pain and, and, and suffering and emotional distress. Come on, you're Joe West. I mean, anyone who follows baseball knows that Joe West is the subject of scorn for the last, you know, three decades. People, you know, mock Joe West constantly. So, you know, I get it that he was the fame, but come on. I mean, it's baseball. Stories get exaggerated in baseball all the time. And I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration to think he was hurt $500,000 worth. Christina, what, are you a baseball fan? Are you? A, do you go to the games? to watch Joe West, like Joe West is probably alleging in his lawsuit, you know, people are really going to the games to follow the umpires, right? So, Rich, I am not a sports fan. However, living in a sports city, I have an appreciation for it. And I just go back to the brand. People are protective, more protective of their brand. Tina said he's trying to get into the Hall of Fame, whatever that designation would allow him to do further on in his life and his career. People are all about their brands, even if they only have 500 followers. And so, you know, I think it's brand protection. It's reputation protection uh, for sure. 
Well, That's Christina, a I'm a I'm a brand lawyer, and so whether you like the Joe West brand or not, mm-hmm. you know Joe's got to protect his brand. <laughs> yes. All right, Joe. Speaking of Cowboy, Joe and Jordan. Wait, I mean, you guys have uh, been around Joe West many, many times. What What are your thoughts on this lawsuit? Well, I mean, as, this as is Paul, as Paula Duke known to be like a an exact. I mean, he's a pretty entertaining guy. I watch him all the time, but. What are your thoughts on this lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, LaDuca is, you know, kind of one of those talkers that clearly, at least according to this court, has made, spun a real yarn here. Because and the, the thing for Joe West is that there's always been scorn because people don't like his calls. But this, I mean, for, to me, this, this all comes down to reputation, right? Like, if you don't have credibility as an umpire, your career's over. And I know that his career is coming towards the conclusion anyway because he's an older guy. But, you know, if... If you're, if we're going to call into question something like this, a specific story where it's alleging that you know the guy was trading rides in the car for a bigger strike zone, then it would call into question tons of games and tons of results. I mean, this is sort of like you know a smaller example of one that that uh, referee in the NBA, Tim Donahue, was yeah. throwing games and how much the NBA suffered a, a brand reputation hit because of it. And so for Joe West to win this. I think it's good not only for him, but it's good for baseball. The other thing I would say to Paul Duca, Also, by the way, there's a couple of weeks ago, the NHL ref who was suspended, actually, actually yes. scared because he said he was making, he's doing a makeup call. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, these things are really, really important for leagues and for officials not to have, you know, any questions to their credibility or reputation. But the last thing I would say is for Paul Duca. Have you not heard of BaseballReference.com? There are websites where people can look to see how many games Joe West was umpiring with these two on the field together at the same time. They could boil this down to literally each batter. They can look at every pitch that was thrown. This is all documented on the internet. A quick search could find it. So if you're going to tell a specific story like that that's not true, then it better be backed up because the records are out there. So I just I don't understand what he was doing. Kind of circle back to one of our previous topics. What if I told you there was someone you could loathe both professionally and from their personal <laughs> nature? Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Joe West. But no, I do hear that for as much smack as he gets, a lot of people think when he's not on the baseball field, he's a very good guy. Uh, listen, I'm kind of with Tina. It's such an outrageous claim that I feel like he's bringing more light to it and creating more reason for people to think that he's a lousy umpire. Um, clearly he, he won the court, so he, he gets his money and then he, he wins that battle. But I, I personally didn't hear this story until, you know, this all had happened. I didn't listen. I don't listen to that podcast. So I, I almost feel like he's bringing more light to it, but, uh, you know, people are going to believe what they want to believe about Joe West. And, and at the end of the day, that's going to be it. All right. Quickly, Jordan, the Cubs, they can't hit for, for, for anything. What's going on with the Cubs and talk, talk to us with the White Sox really quick. And then we'll let everyone go on legal face off. Well, I think the, I think it's going to be a rough year for the Cubs. I don't think their offense is as bad as it's been because statistically it's like the second worst 10-game stretch in Cubs history I saw earlier today. I actually think that their pitching over the long haul is not going to be good. So if you think the offense is bad now, I think eventually it'll be a little bit better than this because there's no way they're going to be historically the worst offense in the league. I don't think their pitching is very good either. And I have a pretty pretty good feeling that by midseason – if some of these guys individually are having good years, they're going to get traded. And we're going to be back to, you know, probably early 2000s bad Cubs by that point. 
You can find all of Jordan's hot takes on Twitter at Jordan Burnfield. You can also find Christina on Twitter at CC Steed. Also go check out her work at ChristinaSteed.com. I want to thank everybody, Jordan, Christina, Andrew, David, Travis, Patrick, and of course, Emily Flores and Ben Anderson. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. This has been Legal Faceoff. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.